welcome. Pull up a seat, grab a cup, and get ready to share, listen, and learn. This is my favorite coffee story with your host, Aniko Samoji. You'll hear about the stories about coffee itself, the history, health benefits, recipes, and more, along with some personal stories inspired by coffee and the lifestyle. Now, here is Aniko Somoji. Welcome to our listeners all around the world. Welcome to my favorite coffee store. We're just delighted you've joined us. We have a very special show today, and we are talking about relationship coffee, connecting with farmers behind their cup. And we have a very special guest joining us, David Griswold, who's the CEO of Sustainable Harvest in Portland, Oregon. And before I get to introduce our special guest, David, we we it's time now for Anikona Moments. And I'd love to share with you a little bit about what's going on in Kona. We just had the Ironman, so... Uh, Kona has been really busy and bustling and uh, just thriving the last few weeks with all these athletes training and you'll see them. Uh, So that's been really exciting. So the Ironman went really well, but we've been picking our coffee uh, this last week and we have beautiful red cherry that we've been picking and we've been pulping the beans and uh, they are drying and they'll dry for about 10 to 14 days. Can't wait for our listeners and our friends and family guests to try our next harvest. The other thing we had going on at Anikona Farm was we had wonderful friends and guests visit us from Seattle this weekend. We had a big Anikona brunch and we love hosting friends and family at the farm. We had Anikona coffee and a big brunch and that was just wonderful. We were so happy they joined us. So now if I may introduce David Griswold, CEO of Sustainable Harvest. And the organization is... um, really important to the coffee industry. They are transforming the way coffee is bought and sold, one relationship at a time. Uh, The impact that can be created with every cup is, it, it creates transform transformational change in coffee communities. So David Griswold has been heading up Sustainable Harvest, and we're looking forward to welcoming you, David, to our show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Oh, we are so happy you're here. So David, if we may talk a little bit about some of your early days in your career, your personal journey, as you embarked um on your coffee career, and you were involved with Aztec Harvest in 1990 for about five years. Tell us, please, a little bit about that experience. Sure. Um, so I got into coffee sort of by chance, I, um, as many of us do in our careers. I had been um, interested in journalism before I uh, was interested in coffee, and I'd had a, um, uh, finishing college, I'd had a fellowship that took me for a year, and travel in South America and Africa um, doing journalism, doing, doing um, feature stories about um, government programs that created athletes, actually runners. And I spent a lot of time in Kenya not looking at coffee, but looking at how they uh, grew or harvested some of the greatest world-class distance runners. And, um, and so, but while I was there, I also noticed 
a lot of projects throughout Africa that um, kind of disturbed me. I noticed a lot of um, large, large-scale projects that were supposed to uh, we were spending millions of dollars on as a as a as a Americans through our own USAID and sometimes through other um, programs out there. And I and sometimes I saw programs that just weren't necessarily reaching the people. And I thought um, I was I was interested in how um, companies like Ben and Jerry's and and the Body Shop with Anita Roddick were using business to create. Um, you know, to help people better their lives by, you know, creating social enterprises, which um, it was really a fascinating idea. And so back in 1990, um, after working for a, a nonprofit in, in Washington, D.C. called Ashoka that actually funded social entrepreneurs, and I was the director of communications, again, writing stories about people, I went down um, to work in Mexico, and the Mexican coffee growers were going through a lot of struggles, and that was because... At that point in the coffee world, back in 1989, 1990, the, um, there was a coffee quota system that was being disbanded because the East-West um, rivalry between uh, the Soviet Union and the United States was coming to an end with the fall of the Berlin Wall. And as a result, the coffee quota system was being dismantled, and coffee prices went from about 20 or 30 years of being pretty steadily at a, at a living wage of, say, $1.30, $1.40 a pound for green coffee, unroasted, to start, it started to um, to crash down, and that was because there was oversupply that was coming onto the market, mostly from places like Brazil and others. And um, suddenly the markets were very, very low, and people couldn't make a living from coffee. And I'm there in Mexico and um, trying to sort of just be a volunteer, help them try to figure out how to um, how to organize the farmers and the cooperatives. And they asked me to um, they asked me to figure out a way to sell their beans. And so um, so that's how I started. I sort of had a journalism background, a story background, and I didn't know a lot about coffee, but I thought, let me go, let me go and figure out how to help these people sell the beans. And, um, and what I did is I actually just took some coffee beans and had them roasted in Acapulco, and, um, which was near where I was working in the coffee fields. It was um, there on the Pacific coast in a place called Atoyac in Guerrero State of Mexico. And I took the beans from Acapulco, roasted them, and had a carousel projector with some slides and went up to New York and opened the, um, literally opened the phone book to the yellow pages and went to the first under coffee importers and went to the first one. And that was a big multinational um, that sort of listened to me but said um, they weren't very interested in relationship coffees. They bought containers of coffee mostly on just the physical grade of the coffee, not the people behind the bean. So I was a little frustrated. And I decided I knew had some contacts with two guys who made ice cream up in Vermont, Ben and Jerry. And so I actually went up to Vermont and um, started to talk to them about how do they source their coffee that went into their coffee ice cream. And the people there said, well, we're not really sure, but they sort of asked around, how do we do that? And little by little, I got enough, um, got enough traction by sending them sort of updates from the field in Mexico that one day Ben told one of his friends in the coffee business, hey, let's uh, figure out how to get these Aztec harvest beans into the Ben & Jerry's ice cream. And um, we've been serving the beans from that for that coffee ice cream has been coming from Mexican co-ops since 1992. And so that was those little, those little wins early on made me think maybe there's a way to transform coffee. And so that's kind of how I started, just um, trying to figure out how do you make people care about the people behind the beans, not just 
not just the quality of the beans, but also the quality of life of those who are growing them. Oh, yes. That's a wonderful story. Are you by chance still in touch with those farmers in Mexico from 1990? Absolutely, yeah. We, we have an office now, um, my new company, which um, started 20 years ago called Sustainable Harvest, um, has an office in Oaxaca, Mexico, and has for 15 years. And through that office, the farmers from, from the group that sells to Ben & Jerry's and many other cooperatives from Chiapas, Oaxaca, and Veracruz, um, they come in and learn how to get market access to more coffee roasters because that's what I do. I sell the my team sells the beans to coffee roasters um, all throughout the United States, Europe, Australia, and they come in and they learn how to taste coffee um, according to professional standards. They learn how to get financing for their coffee, and those some of those farmer groups from 1990 are still in relationship coffees with us, including the one that was with Ben and Jerry's continues to provide those beans. That's one of the longest business relationships I think um, a company like that might have. Well, Ben and Jerry's, uh, their coffee ice cream is one of a kind and so wonderful. And it just shows how relationship coffee really makes a difference. You still are in touch and you work with those farmers in Mexico still from 1990s. that's that's just an in- incredible story. Certainly, the specialty coffee business and industry has really grown since 1990. Tell tell us, please, what were some of the secret elements of growing specialty coffee? Well, I think that coffee went through some transformations when, you know, after World War II, when coffee, you know, it was really about coffee. Um, for the masses. That's what I think they sort of defined the first wave of coffee after World War II. The soldiers came back from from the front and, and came back to the United States, and it was about getting coffee to everybody um, through cans of coffee. And, and, um, and it was really about, you know, we, we knew about Folgers being mountain-grown and things like that, but uh, people weren't really focusing on the terroir of coffee. They were focusing mostly on where the, you know, the coffee could come to them cheap and you could put it in a percolator and have it running all day and smell coffee, but it wasn't necessarily um, a really high quality cup that we're sort of getting used to now and in what they call the third wave. Uh, The second wave of coffee was focusing mostly on the manufacturing or how the roasting was done, the French roast and the Italian roast and things like that. And then, um, and those were the second wave is sort of seen as the people who began to start specialty coffee, um, companies like Pete's Coffee in Berkeley and and many others, um, Thanksgiving Coffee and others that started in the early 70s. And then in as coffee grew in the late 90s and 2000s, a whole new generation of millennials started to get involved in coffee. And they call that the third wave where they really started to focus on um, the craft of coffee and, and knowing the farmers and what made for a great, knowing the farmers behind the beans, having relationships with those farmers, and, um, and focusing on what could make coffee exceptional. And I think we're all familiar now as we see coffee houses exploding throughout the United States and across the world, um, people doing pour-overs and Chemex and, and Harios and just all the different ways that coffee can be produced. And people have now really started to elevate the bean and the producer behind the bean. So it's been fun from my perspective, to kind of bridge the... I I wasn't there for the first wave in coffee, but the second wave to the third wave where I watched people go from just saying, 
I only know my broker. I only know the person I buy coffee from in the United States, too. I want to know really where the coffees are grown and the people behind them. And, and people travel a lot more. And that's been, that's been exciting to watch. And Sustainable Harvest has always been hoping that people would care about the, the farmers behind the beans as, as well as the quality of the cup, because I think they can go, they go better hand in hand when they're, when they're together. Well, absolutely. The relationship is key. And knowing where you actually are sourcing your coffee and how it's grown, also all the way from the farmers knowing where it's ending up and it's ending up over at Ben and Jerry's. And how did you actually know the people over at Ben and Jerry's ice cream, David? Well, when I worked at Ashoka, um, which was the, the nonprofit that was funding social entrepreneurs, um, I, uh, some of the people, some of the networks I developed in Washington, D.C., knew of people being in social enterprise because um, Ashoka was focused on social entrepreneurs, people who were coming up with innovative solutions that could create transformative change in education, health, and other things like that. And on the business side, Ben & Jerry's was, you know, it was really Stonyfield with Gary Hirschberg, Ben & Jerry's, um, and um, Anita Roddick with The Body Shop, who were the leading figures that I saw as people that I looked up to. And I joined Social Venture Network, which was a, a group of where they would all meet. And early on, um, I would, you know, sort of sit at their, at their, um, at the, their feet and listen to, you know, how they had gone through their journey. And that gave me inspiration for how I would start my own company and, um, and try to make that work. And it's, it's really exciting because I, we still have a great relationship with both Ben and Jerry. And, and, and when Jerry comes out to Portland, he'll come and visit with us and have lunch. And it's, it, you know, you realize that these relationships um, go beyond the business. It's about how we're trying to, you know, make the world a, a more equitable place where farmers um, also are part of the equation and at the table because, um, you know, more and more in these days as, as businesses get consolidated, you often hear people say, I'm, I'm interested in sustainable coffee, but we have to make a profit. And what I think is missing in that conversation so often is the thought that um, are the farmers making profit? And that's really important. And so that's one of the things that we, we continue to fight for them having a voice at the table. And that was what Sustainable Harvest has always tried to do is make sure the farmers are part of the conversation. So true. Well, in 1997, you founded Sustainable Harvest, and you've been actually um, running the company since. I know you have a new president as of 2017, but when you founded Sustainable Harvest, David, um, you've chatted a little bit about relationships and making sure that farmers are you know, all their work is handled in a fair way. What would you say was the key thing that inspired you to initiate Sustainable Harvest? One of the things that I I remembered when when somebody asked me the question, what was that moment where you realized you would do the work that you do? Um, I thought back to when I was back in Mexico as a volunteer, and I remembered being in Mexico City right around 1990, 1991, and when the market was crashing on the farmers and the Mexican government had decided to get out of the business of coffee, um, they had previously been involved with fertilization, with marketing, with market access, and they had decided to liberalize or basically government was getting out and it was going to become privatized. And the cooperative farmers, there were 250,000 small-scale farmers in Mexico at the time, really didn't know how to get started in the marketplace. And that was brought to me in a very 
um, vivid way one day when I was sitting at the co-op offices, which were these um, offices in a very sort of rundown building on a street in Mexico City on the big, the big avenue that goes across Mexico City called Insurgentes. And, and I remember walking to work one day and, and I um, walked up the concrete steps and sat down on my desk and in came a man carrying um, a plastic bag filled with coffee, beans, and parchment. And I remember um, he came in and I looked at the parchment and he sat down and he told me he'd taken a bus for seven hours from northern Mexico near Puerto Vallarta, a place called Nayarit. And back there, there was a communal land system in Mexico at the time in the 90s called the Ejido system. And there were 300 families who were waiting for him to come back. He brought a sample of their beans that they picked and dried and they wanted to know how they were going to sell them now that there was no government support. And uh, so he said, uh, I heard you're here to help us sell our beans. Puedes ayudarnos? He asked, can you help us? And at the time, I, there was no internet, and I knew very little about coffee. And I, In fact, it was almost like I turned around to think, like, is he talking to me about this? And I planned to go to business <laughs> school after finishing my time in Mexico. And, um, and so when, when he asked me that question, I realized how he didn't know that you can't send the beans and parchment to a broker in New York, like the ones I had visited, that you have to actually yes. take the parchment peanut shell off and um, put it in green bean. And so that was the moment when I realized he didn't have the same access to markets that many of us sort of assume are natural. And I thought um, I didn't have an answer for him at that time. And, uh, and yet his question had made me think, how am I going to help people like that um, be able to sit at the table and be empowered and unlock their own potential to make their own sales? And that was the moment that I realized that sustainable harvest needed to be in the market um, with a different kind of model than how commodities were bought and sold. And I thought it was really important to, to um, develop a model that was based on transparency and create more trust um, that would bring farmers the newest technologies, the ones we were used to, whether it was an iPad or an iPhone or a good computer. There was no reason that farmer leaders of cooperatives should be you know, five or six years behind simply because um, they didn't have access. And so um, they should have um, access to financing and um, they should know who they're selling to so they can have pride of ownership of knowing the hard work is going to a roaster somewhere in the United States or Europe or Australia. And that was what I called relationship coffee. And um, it wasn't something that you could patent, but it was just a way that we decided, let's create a, the, the standard of which coffee can be sold. And I think there are a number of, you know, um, there are a number of companies and others that have, have based their their brands around really having direct relationships. And, I, and that makes me happy because the world of coffee has changed. And I hope we had just a little part of helping that change. Well, you have. Sustainable Harvest has definitely helped. And David, we are looking forward to continuing our chat after the break. Listeners, please join us. We'll talk a little bit more about sustainable business trends in the coffee business. And a lot of the stories that David has when he's been visiting the farms and coffee communities. Please join us right after the break. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. My favorite coffee story is brought to you by Anikona Farm. 
where every bean we grow represents a great story somewhere in the world. When you buy coffee from Anikona Farm, you're investing in new memories, stories, and experiences. We harvest our beans with your future story in our heart. So, from our heart to yours, enjoy the Anikona experience. May your coffee story be as rich and delicious as our Kona coffee with love. Please visit Anikona.com and get your Anikona Story coffee special today. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. You are listening to my favorite coffee story with Aniko Samoji. Drop us a line and share your story. Our email address is orders at anikona.com. Again, that's orders at anikona.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to my favorite coffee story. We've been having such a nice chat with David Griswold, CEO of Sustainable Harvest in Oregon. And we were just talking with David about what inspired him to actually start Sustainable Harvest in 1997. And now we're going to ask David if he could kindly share some of his favorite coffee stories during his travels and visiting the farms and the coffee communities um, along the way. One initiative that David was involved in was um, part of a Bloomberg grant. And we would love to ask you, David, about the Rwanda initiative and how that's going, helping 13,000 women um, with coffee farming. Absolutely. So, Sustainable Harvest, um, while it, it, its core business is helping the farmers trade the coffee, sell the, the green unroasted coffee to roasters, um, we've also taken a portion of what we make and reinvest it back in farmer training and, um, and what you would sort of see as development projects. And um, sometimes that's been actually confusing for people in the coffee industry because they can't tell if Sustainable Harvest is, um, you know, it doesn't operate like a traditional commodity coffee trader. But what we try to do is, is partner with those other kinds of entities, whether it's philanthropy, government, um, and, and private sector, who want to add more to improve the lives of the farmers. And one large opportunity that came our way came as a result of um, some of the conversations we had had in terms of bringing technology and um, traceability 
uh, and agronomy skills to Tanzania. Um, I'm going to first start, before I tell you about Rwanda, I'll tell you that in Tanzania, um, Jane Goodall, who had the chimpanzee program in the Gombe, had come to the specialty coffee industry and said that she was worried that the farmers who farmed coffee next to where the chimpanzees were located in the Gombe region weren't making enough money, and so they were continuing to clear-cut more land and try to plant more coffee to make a living. And um, she came and spoke once to uh, our association and said, um, I'd like to see something happen there. And uh, many, a couple of roasters, one being Green Mountain Coffee Roasters, came to me and said, hey, can you, can you develop something that will work there? And so we actually did a, our first project where we had funding from a, a Portland-based nonprofit, the Lemelson Foundation, um, to help train um, several thousand farmers how to produce better quality coffee, use less water, and improve the biodiversity by um, replanting trees as part of getting them into coffee um, into coffee markets and getting them a much higher price. So we increased their price by um, two-thirds. And, uh, and as a result of that project, um, the people from Bloomberg Philanthropies uh, got in touch and said um, that they were interested in a project which would involve initially 3,500 women in Rwanda. Um, in Rwanda, because of the 1994 genocide, these women had lost their husbands, and so they were single or widows, uh, single moms or widows, and they were trying to figure out, they were going through a life skills program through another nonprofit, Women for Women International, and coming out of that life skills program, they needed to find something that could bring them income. And so uh, the relationship coffee model was something that Bloomberg Philanthropies was interested to see if it could scale. And I, um, and so we partnered with Bloomberg Philanthropies to create the Relationship Coffee Institute, which was a nonprofit that then would carry out the work um, of trying to help and originally 3,500, and now it's grown to 13,000, and will, um, by the time we're finished six years later, reach 25,000 Rwandan women who have now become coffee growers. Um, they're selling their coffees at specialty prices. They're, um, there are... Um, they're basically learning how, not just to be farmers, but how they're now business women and they're, they're meeting buyers and they've created their, even their own brand of roasted coffee in Rwanda that now the Marriott hotels um, chose to use the Rwanda, Rwanda women's roasted coffee in their hotel in Kigali, Rwanda and um, it's on Rwanda airlines, for example. So it's been this success story of helping women farmers not only understand how to make a living, but to also become um, uh, empowered to unlock the potential that they have um, to sell coffee at differentiated prices where there's value addition. As we all know, roasted coffee is where the, the value is, and often growers send only their raw beans, export them to, the, to countries, and somebody else roasts them. So to build a coffee culture in Rwanda through the brand Question Coffee is what their brand is called, um, has been a really um, wonderful success story, and it continues today. That's an incredible success story. I know that you work hard to provide, I guess, through the Relationship Institute to actually provide the agronomy training and the coffee farm certification, and the success and the 
what has happened as a result of this initiative is tremendous. So that's that's incredible. What a what a wonderful coffee story that is. When you when you're there visiting with the coffee farmers, for example, in Rwanda, how do you actually build those relationships? Well, I think it, you just build them um, one conversation at a time. Um, we do. Uh, uh, I, it's sometimes hard to have a one-to-many conversation, but the idea of creating a conversation between buyers and farmers is really at the core of what Relationship Coffee is about. And one of the tools that we use to scale that is a concept, um, it's, it's somewhat like a, um, it's called Let's Talk Coffee, and it's, it's a very large um, event that spans three days where um, it's like a trade show, but it's for the buyers and the growers government, finance, philanthropy, and academics to come together who are all trying to empower this particular supply chain in Rwanda, the one with the 13,000 women currently, and help them find the resources and learn new ideas and, and really make connections. And so it's not just me having a conversation with, say, the leader of the cooperative, the women's cooperative, but it's hundreds of conversations that are catalyzed by the gathering of Let's Talk Coffee. And we'll have our fourth Let's Talk Coffee um, in Rwanda um, this, this coming year. And it's, um, it's really been quite a, a powerful tool. And, when I, and you'll have 250 to 300 people attending. And then, then they go back into the rural areas where they're from, and they're able to share what they learned with hundreds and hundreds of other women who are part of the cooperative and that's how the word starts to spread that there can be a different kind of model, one where there's transparency and trust and they know the rules of how the game is played and they feel that's what, I mean, I feel like that's what takes them on the path to being empowered businesswomen. Absolutely. You mentioned that technology is really important in transparency and building the relationships. How do you help them with the technology? Well, Early on when I was in Mexico back in the 90s, um, it just seemed odd every time we would have a a new kind of laptop or a new kind of computer, uh, the kinds of computers that were down in the developing world were always a year or two or more behind. And um, as we we saw new technologies like iPads and and iPhones and things like that um, occur in our world, we would share those technologies with with our farmer leaders at Let's Talk Coffee, whether it was in Africa or we did Let's Talk Coffees throughout South America. And I remember back in early 2003 or four, explaining to them about this new concept that I'd seen in Wired Magazine, a, a new way to communicate called Skype. Everybody said, what is Skype? <laughs> and so, um, and it's just been that idea that let's take them, what is the latest, greatest technologies? They're ready for them. Um, we see that the, the world of um, cellular phones is all over Africa. They're going to skip the landline model and go directly to, you know, wire, uh, cell towers. And then how can we use those technologies, um, whether they're traceability um, and transparency tools, how can, they, they for, how, can they, how can they use that to sort of keep track of information that's important to their buyers and to, um, to their own business? And so, for example... If you went to Rwanda and you went to one of the, the coffee washing stations, the processing centers, you would see a relationship coffee woman. She's the leader of that group, and she would have a, um, she'd have a smartphone, and she would be capturing data about 
everything about that group, about the farm, about the trees, about who's bringing how much coffee in, um, a lot about livelihoods, and all the kinds of data that, um, that our customers, the clients who buy the coffee, want to know, if I purchase this coffee, am I making an impact? But we're letting, what's different about our model here is that we're not just capturing the data and keeping it ourselves as a sustainable harvest. We're teaching the women and the cooperatives how to own their own data so that they can have any buyer they want and they can control that because data is power in today's world of sustainability. People want to know, is my purchase making an impact? Am I moving the needle on poverty? And by them controlling their own data, that's another example of, in the Bloomberg project of how they're going to control their um, their own destiny and be able to have a choice of buyers. And so we're not, they're not being um, bottlenecked by, by some company that has all the information. So that's kind of the example of how we use technology to bring their ability to, to, um, to keep track of their business and make it positive. Thanks for sharing that, David. No, that really helps us understand how that transparency is promoted. I know that um, the other element that you've mentioned that um, the transparency of um, how to provide capital and how to provide loans, that's a whole different element on the financial side. How does Sustainable Harvest help with some some of that transparency and, and some of the financial side of the relationships? Yeah, financing, if you're a, if you're a manager of a cooperative and you have, let's say, 500 to 1,000 members who are farmers, um, you need to borrow, be able to borrow money from banks to pay for those farmers for their beans when they bring them in. Because just down the street, there's going to be a, a multinational trading company who's also paying for coffee. So you'll see signs in South America that say, se compra café, we buy coffee. And so it's competitive. And the farmer who farms their coffee may belong to a co-op, but they also are going to want the best possible price. So if cooperatives, and that's primarily who Sustainable Harvest has always tried to support, the, the worker-owned entity, the farmer, the grower-owned cooperative, and we really focus on, on those because they bring other um, benefits to the community, uh, we need to get them financing in place. And so there's a group, our new president, Liam Brody, comes from a group called Root Capital, which was one of the innovative lenders back in the early 2000s to come up with a triangulation concept on lending. So this is how it works. Um, we, we sit together with, uh, at, um, you know, with the buyer and the growers and the bankers at a table at Let's Talk Coffee, and we, uh, because there's so much transparency, we decide how much, the, you know, how much is the roaster going to buy from those growers. And once that number is reached, whatever that is, you know, 100, 300, maybe a million dollars worth of coffee from a particular cooperative, the bank there is willing to um, loan money to those growers in advance of the harvest based on those contracts because they know that they can get paid back. And here's and the way it works is they, then the bank, the root capitals and the other banks that do this will loan the money to the cooperative. The cooperative then can buy beans from its members. They process it. They ship it up to Sustainable Harvest. Sustainable Harvest sells it to a roaster in the United States. And then we pay back the bank and, the, and the, that root capital bank or whichever social lender, and then the rest of the money that's still left over is returned to the cooperative. So those loans are repaid back every year, which banks really like. They don't want to leave the money out, and they need to be repaid every year. And so this very creative model that was, I think, um, um, pioneered by the root capital founder, Willie Foote, who's a, 
um, an Ashoka Fellow, actually, um, where, which is where I worked as a communications director many years before. Um, these kinds of models have, um, have really transformed how cooperatives can access financing. So any given year, about $20 million of financing to the growers we work with is triangulated. And the benefit is that they are able to get loans at lower rates of interest than they could most likely locally because they don't have a lot of assets against which to borrow money. They have their mills and things like that. But these contracts added a new form of collateral or assets that they could borrow more money. And so that really unleashed their potential to grow their business. So it's been a great model. That's an incredible model. I love the transparency and just kind of the straightforward elements that you've brought to that model. And it seems like it's really making a difference for those cooperatives. Uh, David, we've been so enjoying hearing about your various experiences with the farmers and the coffee communities, Rwanda, the Rwanda Initiative, as well as the Relationship Relationship Institute, Coffee Institute that you've initiated. And we are looking forward to talking a little bit more after the break about um, your time as being president of the Specialty Coffee Association of America. And we look forward to talking with you more. And listeners, please join us right after the break. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. My favorite coffee story is brought to you by Anikona Farm, where every bean we grow represents a great story somewhere in the world. When you buy coffee from Anikona Farm, you're investing in new memories, stories, and experiences. We harvest our beans with your future story in our heart. So, from our heart to yours, enjoy the Anikona experience. May your coffee story be as rich and delicious as our Kona coffee with love. Please visit Anikona.com and get your Anikona Story coffee special today. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to My Favorite Coffee Story with Aniko Samoji. Drop us a line and share your story. Our email address is orders at anikona.com. Again, that's orders at anikona.com. Now, back to this week's show. We're so glad you're back at My Favorite Coffee Story. We've been talking with our special guest, David Griswold, CEO of Sustainable Harvest. And we were just talking about making relationships transparent and working with the coffee communities in Africa and um, how they have their Let's Talk Coffee meetings and how 13,000 women in Rwanda have actually now gone through um, the Relationship Coffee Institute and their livelihood, their incomes have been raised 
Coffees. They're actually selling coffee now to the hotels. Um, has been a tremendous success. And now we were going to talk with David about the time when he actually was president of the Specialty Coffee Association in America in 2003. Tell us, please, David, how that experience was. Well, it was, uh, it was a delightful experience to become the president of the association because um, the Specialty Coffee Association of America was one of the leading, if not the leading, coffee association in the world in terms of building standards and education for coffee. And my pathway towards becoming the president happened um, because I put on some sustainability conferences for the association in 2000 in San Francisco. And that had gone well enough, uh, I guess, that they thought, okay, this this person can um, help lead us for, for that year in 2003. And what I got out of working for the specialty association, again, it was a volunteer position, so I was still um, running my business, and my business was... Um, was fairly small at the time, so it was a you know it was it was a lot to take on, um, as I remember. But there was a couple of things that came out of that experience. One was the importance to understand that everybody in the coffee value chain has a role to play, and uh, and that to really create a delicious cup of coffee, you need incredible growers, and you need conscientious traders and importers, and you need um, roasters, and then you need the barista to be able to talk about it with the consumer at the cup level. And everybody has to do things correctly and care about and be educated about how to produce a great cup of coffee from cherry to cup. And in when you're working in the association, that becomes just so clear because you see everybody's got just a little piece of the of the puzzle. And what that meant to me was the opportunity for more collaboration for Perhaps the part of the of the of the puzzle that didn't often get to see the the end piece. So the growers at that that time in 2003 didn't have good optics on what was happening at the barista level at the you know at a coffee shop in Seattle or yes. Portland or Denver, Colorado. Um, and so you know that was that was something that I was able to to work with more. Um, I, 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 after I finished my presidency, I became the chair of the International Relations Committee and, and helped build more collaboration between the countries that produced coffee and that consumed coffee. Um, I was able to you know, work with people on how to develop better educational systems so that you could scale the training of coffee professionals. Um, they've done a lot more work since I've been gone, so I can't take credit for the amazing association that it's been become. But this focus on standards um, and education was something that really resonated with me. And I wanted to make sure in my own business that I brought that back to the growers and the, and the leaders of the cooperatives and small family farms that we work with to, um, because those people don't have access to the specialty coffee association trainer, at least training, at least back in those days. And so partly I wanted to figure out how could we develop a system to bring standards, education, and collaboration um, through our business to those people. And um, now the Specialty Coffee Association of America has merged with the European Association, so it's really just called the Specialty Coffee Association, or the SEA, I guess, of the world. And um, so it's fun to watch now. How are they, now that we have a global uh, system, how are they all going to, um, to tell the story of coffee and continue education, collaboration, and standards? 
And um, it's been, you know, it was, it was an amazing experience to be able to get up in front of several thousand people and speak on behalf of the association at the, the annual show. Um, I remember I was pretty nervous, and uh, but I did talk about the concepts of relationship coffee and the importance of having producers at the table and being part of the conversation. And I think if there's one thing that I hope that Sustainable Harvest is known for, it's that it's really making sure that we unlock the potential of the coffee farmer and make them part of the conversation um, of coffee globally so that in this in this world where things are moving so fast we don't forget that without these beans and these people making a, a decent living from farming the beans we won't have coffee to drink yes well i think sustainable harvest is definitely doing that for the farmers and um, I, we all appreciate that what are some of the latest projects at sustainable harvest i know you wanted to make sure that all those standards and education collaboration were kind of brought into sustainable harvest uh, mainstream but what are some of the what's like what's in store for the future there at sustainable harvest well i think it's important for us to um the world of coffee right now much like the beverage, uh, the beer industry, is getting very consolidated. There's a lot of purchasing of smaller companies. I'm sure you've seen Blue Bottle was bought by Nespresso, yes. and, um, and there's just a lot of consolidation. That's, that's kind of, um, these, are new, these are new waters, uncharted waters for everybody in coffee to understand what's going to be the impact of this con- consolidation because it means people are chasing fewer and fewer customers, and that means that sometimes um, business practices can get to be a little a little wacky in terms of, you know, what the expectations are and how low prices can go. And, and I'm worried for farmers in, in, a, in a consolidating market that, um, that, that we find a way to make sure that coffee is a viable business, especially for Central and South American farmers. I think it's important for listeners to realize that the world of coffee is, is primarily, I mean, a lot of the coffee of the world comes from Brazil, which is mechanized. They're flat land, sort of like Kansas, and they can send mechanical pickers through. Um, in Vietnam, the cost of labor is very low, and those are the two biggest providers of coffee. And the concern is in the next five years that 75% of the world's coffee will come from those two countries. The reason that's concerning is that farmers in places like Colombia, Guatemala, Costa Rica, Mexico, um, can't farm coffee at some of the low prices that the current coffee market is at. Coffee market, you know, hovers in the dollar twenty to dollar thirty level, and it just costs, you know, the cost of production of coffee is higher in South America. So the real worry for coffee drinkers is if we don't develop some price tools that separates coffee from the commodity price, especially coffee, we're probably not going to have those um, delightful flavors of, of terroirs of coffee. You know, in the next generation, we'll have coffees that um, that don't taste like an Ethiopian Yirgacheff with its jasmine, or a Sadama with its fruitiness, or uh, the chocolatey the chocolatey um, coffees from Santa Marta, Colombia, or the citrusy from Huila, Colombia. Those are tastes that I don't want to have go away. And right now, the coffee industry needs to find the leadership and the wherewithal to separate themselves from the commodity price, so that we protect specialty coffee and that's one concern I have yes would you say that would you have a favorite coffee the ones that you listed do you like to have a little bit more like a cacao undertone or do you have a preference David well all those that I mentioned I've had in the last week so I've had a really good year I mean a good week of coffee Um, I'm enjoying the Ethiopians that are coming in 
uh, and from from a place called Sadamo, and um, and uh, the the coffees from Colombia are spectacular this year. Um, this the the coffees are just also coming in from Peru. So when you think about coffee, the other side, the other hemisphere is where you know we're getting our coffees now, and then the the Central American coffees will come in the February, March, April time zone. So I don't see those yet on my on my plate. Um, but one, I'm going to tell you one last story of um, a project that's related to a coffee. So you may know that the world's most expensive coffee this year was a coffee from Panama called Hacienda Esmeralda, and it's a coffee called Geisha. It's a kind of bean that comes out of Geisha, Ethiopia. It was replanted in Panama in the early 2000s, and it has received high prices over the last 10 years in the auctions that Panama has. But this year, it got $601 a pound. It was actually in the New York, it was wow. in the Wall Street Journal today. So, um, and we know the family that, that grows this, and it's a very interesting story. But um, we're working on a project with, um, with uh, a beer company in Colorado called New Belgium, where we're going to take that geisha coffee, and they're going to make one of the most amazing beers, a very limited edition beer that will launch in about three weeks. Um, and, but it's not just about expensive coffee, and I think that would be the wrong takeaway from this. It's, it's actually a beer that is so delightful with coffee and beer and using the Esmeralda Geisha that it's something that you collaborate and share with others, right? You'll, it's the kind of beer yes. you want to bring together with friends. And the other thing that I think is interesting is that a dollar out of every bottle that's sold will go back to fund, through the Relationship Coffee Institute, will go fund the World Coffee Research Center's efforts to create and protect heirloom varietals of coffee to make sure that coffee, um, the seedlings that we're worried about losing, can get out to smallholders. Many of um, the small groups, the, the co-ops, will have access to seeds and be able to build nurseries that are more climate-resistant um, varietals that can deal with the coffee rust but still have exceptional flavor. So that's a nice example of where we can kind of celebrate coffee. We can have something that's interesting for anybody who likes coffee or beer, but also it's doing good on the back end. And that's what a sustainable harvest um, ideal project is like, where we do some good and we have fun while we're doing it. Well, that does sound like fun. And also, you do tremendous good. You have so much to be proud of, David. And in 2010, if I may share with our listeners, you were named one of America's most promising social entrepreneurs by Bloomberg Business Week, which is um, well-deserved. What would you say you're most proud of um, during your time at Sustainable Harvest? I guess I'm proud that we've stayed independent and that we continue to keep farmers at the forefront of what we what we focus on. I'm really proud of the people that work with me and who have worked with me in the past um, for all that they've brought because, um, you know, the staff and the growers and the, the people that make up the Sustainable Harvest Let's Talk Coffee family are really out there, um, you know, they're, they're really fighting an important fight that protects um, the lives of a lot of smallholder farmers who otherwise I don't think would have a voice. So, yeah, I think that it's just surviving in a world that always seems to turn upside down and, and finding new ways to reinvent yourself and the model and um, maintain independence so that you can still make the right decisions. I think I'm pretty proud of that. Well, yes, and you've been actually 
since 1997, um, they're at the helm of Sustainable Harvest, and seems like you've been very adaptable throughout the decades and helping um, farmers and farming communities from Africa to South America to Mexico um, with your relationship uh, Coffee Institute and the whole premise of Relationship Coffee. So we're all very grateful to you, David. I would love to ask you, please, um, you're so busy and dedicated to what you're doing and you've done so much good. How do you balance your time between sustainable harvest and also just having a little time just to kind of unwind and some of your favorite um, projects outside of sustainable harvest? Well, that's a tough question because I think maybe some of my family and staff might think that maybe I should unwind a little more and not be quite as driven, but I really enjoy the work that we do, and I've been able to travel with my with my family. I have one boy; he's 16. He's traveled a lot to coffee countries, and I think watching how his worldview has been influenced by visiting farms in places like Nicaragua and Guatemala and Brazil, and just seeing how other people live, I know that he's going to have the same experience that I had. Uh, he's already had the same experience that I had following my college experience, where you go through the world and you see how other people live and and then you start to figure out like how do we collaborate how are we a multicultural um you know business how do we make sure that uh in my world it's not it's not what's the current political um system i'm really about like how do we play well with others around the world and so um yeah i think that i, I didn't answer your question about how i'm going to slow down but i can tell <laughs> you that i'm really enjoying what i do well, and we so appreciate all that you do, David, and um, setting such a great example for uh, so many businesses in general um, is really noticed and, and is very appreciated. So we'd love to express our gratitude to you today for all that you do. And also, thank you so much for joining us today on My Favorite Coffee Story and just sharing your most amazing and inspiring stories to our list, with our listeners. So we're really grateful to you. Thank you so much, David. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us again this week on My Favorite Coffee Story. We've had such a nice time chatting with David Griswold but we've also learned so much about sustainability, leadership, creating transformational change in coffee communities, relationship coffee, transparency, and really transforming the way coffee is bought and sold one relationship at a time. So it's just been an amazing time together. Please, if you'd like to continue the conversation, um, you can always send us questions at radio at Mike favoritecoffeestory.com and we look forward to having you join us next week in the meantime enjoy a relaxing time and thank you again we are pleased that you are with us today and we wish you a wonderful aloha thank you for taking an hour out of your busy week to join us on my favorite coffee story Please tune in again for another edition with your host, Aniko Samoji, next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, we hope you'll have a relaxing week 